Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel which Mark has written for us, recorded for us. We thank you that in it we can learn of Christ and of the life that he lived, which was perfect in every way. We thank you that we can learn of the death that he lived, which is satisfying to you in every way. And we thank you that we can read of an empty grave that fills us with such wonder and amazement it sets us to running in our minds and in our bodies. And we pray, Heavenly Father, you'd fill us with such awe and amazement now as we look to your Son, Jesus Christ. Open our eyes and our ears and give us hearts to receive him. We pray this all to your glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I've always liked the ending of Mark's gospel in the form we've inherited it. I have to specify in the form that we've inherited it because it's unlikely that verses 9 through 20, which weren't read for you, the, the last 12 verses of Mark's gospel are original. Our earliest manuscripts do not contain this longer ending, and the vocabulary is distinctly unlike the rest of the book. It's more likely that these 12 verses were added on to the end of the gospel at a later date because it is also unlikely that verse 8 was Mark's intended ending for his gospel either. The very fact that someone felt the need to even write verses 9 through 20 and attach it at a later date betrays the ancient person's discomfort with the gospel ending in verse 8, with three women fleeing Jesus' empty tomb in fear and amazement and Jesus never even making an appearance. It doesn't strike us as necessarily an odd way to end a book, but that's because we are modern people. We've read William Faulkner, and once you've read Faulkner, then nothing strikes you as unusual. The ancients, however, would have wondered where the ending had gone. That was no way to end a book in the ancient world, with loose strands frayed and flapping in the breeze. And Ben Witherington, in his commentary on Mark, reminds us that within the genre of ancient biographical literature, which Mark was, it was widely believed that how a person's life ended revealed a person's true character. It must be doubted, therefore, that the final impression Mark wanted to leave in readers' minds about the Jesus he believed in as Son of God and Christ was his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? or that the final impression of the disciples was that they were cowards, for they are depicted as either dispersed and in hiding, or in the case of the women, in fright and in flight and silence. And for that reason and for several others that we can't get into this morning, it's likely that the original ending of Mark's gospel is lost to us. Verses nine through 20 were added later in an attempt to give the book a proper ending for an ancient biography. And it's highly unlikely that Mark intentionally ended his gospel at verse eight. But that's all we have now. And I don't really mind it, to be honest. As I said at the beginning, I've always rather liked the ending of Mark's gospel as we have inherited it. There's something about these three women 
fleeing the open grave in fear and amazement and running through the dawn of that first Easter morning that I find particularly inviting. I want to run with them. For they are running because they have just made contact with reality. And they are simultaneously thrilled and terrified by the possibilities it has introduced to them. The resurrection of Jesus opens up a world of such wonderful prospects that the mere thought of it sets you to running, your legs trying to catch up with your brain and beating heart. Were we to have experienced what those women experienced all those years ago, then as George Weigel says in a recent article, we would be stunned, incapable of knowing the appropriate reaction, shock, fear, overwhelming joy, What is happening shatters the boundaries of experience and strains the emotion's limits to the breaking point. Reality itself seems to be detonating around them. Esther Lightcap Meek is a, a philosopher and more specifically, she's an epistemologist, which means she thinks a lot about knowledge and the act of knowledge. How do we come to know something? And in her book, Longing to Know, she asks, how do we know that we have made contact with reality, or the real, as she calls it? You will know that you have contacted reality, she says, when you are filled with a sense of new and wonderful future possibilities that you can't quite articulate yet, but the mere potential and idea of them thrill and even perhaps fill you with fear nonetheless. It's like you're being ushered into a new world that's unfamiliar to you, but you intrinsically know that there's much to be explored here and discovered over time that will be transformative in effect. This was the feeling that sent those three women running that Easter morning. They had encountered reality in the resurrection And they were being ushered into a world of possibilities that were frightfully wonderful and so terrifyingly intimate that they became overwhelmed by the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and they ran. And we see in their silence an inability to articulate those glorious and fearful potentialities. It would take the church years to work out the implications of the resurrection, and in a lot of ways, we're still doing that work even today. But Mark, who later wrote his gospel account with a clearer mind and some time for reflection, gave us some hints in his Easter morning narrative about the world that Jesus has opened up to us through the resurrection. And there are four hints that Mark has left for us and each of them will have you shouting, Alleluia. The first hint he left for us about the nature of the world that Jesus has opened up to us through the resurrection is found in the commission of these three women in verse seven. And it tells us that in the kingdom of God, the world that Jesus has opened up to us in the resurrection, honor and service are distributed differently. These three women, the two Marys and Salome, were the first witnesses of the empty grave, the first to learn of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the angel in verse seven sends these women to preach the gospel 
for the first time, for the gospel is incomplete without the resurrection. He sends them to preach the gospel for the first time to the men. Go, he tells them. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. The testimony of women was inadmissible in a court of law at that time. And yet, this are, these are the people whom God chooses to be the first witnesses and preachers of the gospel? Practically speaking, this is a very foolish choice. But the wisdom that God governs God's kingdom often sounds like foolishness to us. God chose these women to be the first witnesses and messengers of the gospel because he was establishing right out of the gate that in his kingdom, honor and service are going to be distributed differently than they have in the past and than they, and than they are in the world today. Honor and service were distributed according to how one looked on the outside in the ancient world. And if we're honest, not much has changed in our methods of valuation in the modern world. If you were a free Jewish man who was ordained to the priesthood, then you were about as high on the ladder as you possibly could be. But if you were a widowed Gentile woman, then you lived a fragile existence and were largely disregarded within society. But this staggered assignment of honor wasn't merely economic or cultural but also religious in nature and the very structure of the temple itself communicated who could draw nearest to God and serve him. At the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, the place where God himself was said to live. But as you moved closer to that center, access became more and more restricted. On the very outside, farthest from the center were the Gentiles. They could only enter what was called the outer court. But moving closer to the center, next there was a court for women where no Gentile, man or woman, could enter. Then there was a court for men where women were not allowed, not even Jewish women. Then a court for priests and finally the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could enter once a year. Honor and service were marked off by literal boundaries. But God broke down these boundaries of honor and service when he chose these three women, one of whom literally had a demonic past, to go and preach the gospel for the first time to men, to the disciples whom Jesus himself had handpicked, but who had abandoned him in his last days, in his death. The women are the faithful ones at the end of Jesus' life. They are the honorable ones, the ones commissioned to preach the gospel. And in them, we get a hint at how honor and service are assigned in Jesus' kingdom. They are a hint of what Paul will later declare in Galatians 3. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And Paul is not saying that Jesus eliminated these physical realities. He did not get rid of race or gender or socioeconomic realities. What Paul is saying, and what we get a hint of in the resurrection narratives, is that your honor and your qualification to serve God are not determined by these demographic details. 
which is really good news. News worthy of an alleluia. Because it means whoever you are, and whatever your circumstances, God loves you. And he values you. And he is inviting you to serve him by offering yourself up as a sacrifice to him by living in a way that pleases him, by living for his glory, not for your own. That's how one grows in honor in the kingdom of God. You know, it used to be that only men, priests, could draw near to the throne of God. But God has turned us into a kingdom of priests. And Hebrews tells us that each and every one of us can draw near to the throne of grace in confidence when we draw near in the resurrected Jesus Christ. He makes us glorious regardless of our demographic realities. And we grow in honor as we answer his call to serve him by giving up ourselves for his sake. Hallelujah. The second hint about the world that Jesus has opened up to us in his resurrection that will have you shouting hallelujah is also found in verse seven where the angel in commissioning these women to go preach the gospel tells them to go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of them to Galilee. It's extremely significant that the angel calls out Peter by name here. Peter was one of the disciples, so merely mentioning the disciples would have been sufficient, but the angel calls out Peter by name because in the naming of Peter, we get a hint of the grace that governs God's kingdom. During Jesus' last supper with his disciples on Thursday night, Jesus ended the meal by informing his disciples in advance that he was going to die and they would all desert him. And brave Peter, full of energy and love, contradicted Jesus. Even though all become deserters, I will not, he insisted. And when Jesus told him, yes, you will, Peter insisted, no, I won't. In fact, he said, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. You see, Peter was confident in himself. He was resolute and confident in his own allegiance and the strength of his faith that he would never abandon Jesus. But of course, as the story goes, Peter denies even knowing Jesus on three separate occasions that very night, one of them rather pathetically to a child. He had failed Jesus and failed himself. He had turned himself into a liar and the shame and guilt of his cowardice and weakness must have been crippling to him. He had proven himself neither valiant nor faithful. But Peter was singled out by name in the resurrection narrative in order to teach us that we are saved not by what we do, but by what Jesus has done for us. We are saved by grace. Peter's treachery was known before it was committed. And even once it was committed, still he was singled out as one who needed to hear the gospel. The good news that even though he knows we are sinners, still Jesus died for us and was raised for us so that in him we are forgiven, set free from our crippling shame and set free also from the power of sin in order to live holy lives for God that are fueled not by the strength of our own conviction, 
confidence in ourselves, but by the beauty of his grace. He sees all of your sin. All of it. He knows the ways you have and the ways that you will wrong him. And still, he calls your name, singling you out as someone who needs to be reminded that you are saved by grace and not your own goodness. And that your sin does not nullify or exhaust his grace, but wherever your sin increases, his grace abounds all the more. It is grace that governs his kingdom. Hallelujah. The third hint that Mark leaves for us about the world that Jesus opens up to us in the resurrection is in the nonchalance of the angel in this scene. As one scholar puts it, the resurrection is portrayed in stunning understatement. The women, for sure, are surprised and even needed the angel to tell them that they have no need to be alarmed. But the angel is as cool as a cucumber. He comes across as reserved or subdued, but it's not disinterest that determines this mood of his, but confidence that things are running precisely according to plan. And you can hear this in what he says to the women again in verse seven. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Indeed, at the Last Supper, On Thursday night, Jesus told them in plain language, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. You see, everything is running precisely according to plan. Which means that in all the events of the last three days, including Judas' betrayal, Jesus' farcical trial, the mocking and beating he received from the soldiers, even his death, there was not a single moment, not a single moment, that God had lost control of the situation. It certainly looked that way from the outside, but the angel reminds us in verse seven that Jesus had predicted this unimaginable ending from the beginning. I'll see you in Galilee. He told him this before Judas had even planted that treacherous kiss on his cheek. All that suffering he endured was part of the plan to redeem you from the grip of death, and he willingly endured it out of love because he knew full well that resurrection would be how it all ended, that God would keep him and preserve his life and in the end raise him up. And if God never lost control of the situation but was able still to rescue his son from the grave, then the logic of 2 Peter goes, he will do the same for you. For as Peter says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. In the resurrection, we see that God is able even to rescue us from death. He never loses control. It's called providence. And the providence of God is able to transform the way we experience this world for it makes us bold enough to face any threat and endure any sorrow because we know that God will keep us and preserve our souls for the day when he will make this, new wor- this world new again and give us gloriously incorruptible bodies. Which brings me to the fourth hint 
of the world that Jesus has opened up to us in the resurrection that should make us shout, Alleluia. This fourth hint is again, like all the other hints, found in verse seven, where the angel commissions the women to tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going ahead of them to Galilee just as he told you. Which means that they were going to see Jesus. Mark's gospel does not contain stories about this sweet reunion between Lord and disciples, probably because his real ending is lost to us, but other gospels do. And in Luke 24, Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection. And he asked them, why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, you got anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. In this interaction, Jesus was trying to prove to his disciples that it was really him and that his resurrection was not as a ghost, but as a flesh and blood human being. You see, Jesus has opened up to us a world in which human beings can come alive again after they have died, resurrected through faith and the power of God to live again in a body that can be touched and seen and digest food, but is no longer susceptible to death and with a will that is no longer tempted by sin. Jesus is simply the first model And if we die in him, then we will also one day live again like him. And what a glorious day that will be when death will no longer terrorize us or sin make us miserable, but we will live free, joyful, and contented lives on an earth made new by our resurrected Lord. Hallelujah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.